What's this? What's this? A podcast episode. What's this? I hope it all uploads. What's this? I can't unlock my phone. I must be sleepy. Wake up, Ethan. What's your code? What's this? What's this? What's this? There's something very wrong. What's this? An intro parody song? What's this? The show is filled with fun and information. It's a holiday celebration. Now I'm becoming quite impatient. What's this? Okay. (laughs) All right. Got a little carried away there, but... um. We've got a great uh, show for you, and I'll tell you what I'm not going to do right now. I'm not going to sing the rest of that by myself. I'm actually smack dab in the middle of a fascinating textbook, a real textbook called The Ancient Roman Agriculture's Effect on Climate and Its Subsidiary Biodiversity. Um, I'm just going to go sing the Nightmare Before Christmas song because I like it. Happy holidays. Thank you for listening. Let's just get to the episode. Run it. Run the episode. Bad science. Did the movie get it right? Bad science. Or will we have to fight? Bad, 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 bad science. Hi, everybody. I'm Ethan Edinburgh. Welcome to Bad Science. This is the show that breaks down the science of movies. And today we're discussing a masterpiece. Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. You've seen it. If you haven't seen it, what's wrong with you? It's a Disney movie that starts with a musical number where you see a guy with an axe in his head. It's a unique, wonderful experience, and I have two unique, wonderful guests here to talk to me about it. I'm so delighted to be finally doing this movie and to be talking to these two guys. First, he's a director, animator, and artist. He has worked on such shows as J.J. Villard's Fairy Tales, Moonbeam City, and Rick and Morty. It's Matt Taylor. Yo, what's up, man? Pleasure to talk about this amazing movie today. This is one of the best. One of the best, right? Yeah, nothing like it. Movies ever? Or are you saying of like animated movies or I'd Christmas say in the, movies? in the canon of animation movies, it's a highlight. Yeah, gotta yeah, be. And sure. I just saw, Matt, that you did a video for Willie Nelson. I did, yeah. What's that about? For um, Austin City Limits, they broadcasted virtually this year. And so I collaborated with Texas Monthly, Austin City Limits Fest, and uh, Arts and Labor. And we based that video off of the song you hear is a 2016 performance Willie Nelson did at Austin City Limits. So we took that and we put some animation to it. And uh, yeah, it was it was a great thing to do. It was a good it was a good old Texas time. It was a good old Texas time. <laughs> yeah. The video is great. I couldn't believe that it was like of a live performance. And then you had like Matthew McConaughey give the intro. He turns up, man. He's in there. <laughs> he he brings his Wooderson. Uh, I don't know if Wooderson's been animated before. I'd like to think I'm the first. <laughs> nice. Great. Okay. Well, I got to add that to your credits now. I got to say you're the first one to, to animate Wooderson. Okay. So secondly, I want to also introduce our other guest. He's a freelance writer and host currently for Seeker, NVIDIA. GeForce and GameStop is Julian Huguet. Hi, Ethan. Uh, longtime listener, first time guest. Oh, welcome to the show. It's so strange to hear your voice like actually talking to me and not like pretend like you're my friend like normally when I listen to the podcast. So it's so it's so nice to actually be here. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I assume that you're when you're listening, speaking also like we're having a conversation, you're just talking over the other guests that I are do. actually on the show. I frequently interrupt them. I'm very rude. <laughs> Great. Well, I look forward to that today. <laughs> so by these things you're involved in, I assume that you're a big gamer. Are we talking Fortnite? What games are you into? I love games, but I'm very limited in my game knowledge. Oh, man, I'm all over the map. Uh, so working for NVIDIA, I interview a lot of game developers and hardware engineers, and I talk about both the software and the hardware that goes into making a lot of games. So I have to play all of them, really. 
Uh, that doesn't mean I'm good at most of them. Like first person Whoa. shooters, pretty terrible. I love Apex. Apex doesn't love me back. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. When you're saying that you're terrible at them, are you saying terrible by big league gamer standards, or are you saying you know like terrible? Like I'm terrible. I, I'm uh, uh, the the latter. Probably just kind of generally bad. Honestly, wow. in my free time, I love kind of low pressure, story driven games like single player or like puzzle games because I'm also a great big nerd. My other interest is science. I love uh, writing about, talking about science. So I've been working for Seeker for six years now. And in my free time, the gaming and the, the science hobbies kind of intersect. And that's how I prefer wow. to spend my gaming hours. Do you have a favorite uh, puzzle or science-based video game? Oh my goodness. I could talk about this for the whole podcast. My, <laughs> we don't have time. We don't have time. We don't have time. So I'll just say quickly. <laughs> my favorite game uh, ever is a little known game called the Talos Principle. Ooh. And the Talos Principle, the premise is you are a robot that wakes up and you're solving these puzzles throughout a world while this godly voice is telling you to keep solving the puzzles. But then uh, you interact with a computer terminal repeatedly that kind of questions if you're human or not, and you're trying to trick it. You're trying to pass a, a Turing test, basically. Uh, cool, okay, I'm trying to get more into games, although I must be honest with you, for the past few days, I've only played Super Mario World, the Super Nintendo game, All right. because it came out on the Switch. And so, so but good. guys, we can't just talk about Super Mario on Super Nintendo. We're talking about oh. the Nightmare Before Christmas. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so, listen, while I was watching, I was actually doing the research at the same time, and I was surprised that it seemed like Tim Burton didn't actually have a ton of involvement. I kind of learned that today. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's the big misconception about this movie, right? Is everybody thinks that, like, Tim Burton directed it, but he was the uh, producer on it, and he wrote a poem and then a short story that it's based on but he was not the director or the screenwriter yeah he didn't adapt the screenplay either I, i'm sure matt knows more about this yeah yeah well i don't know i mean you guys seem to have it down uh <laughs> that's absolutely what happened the other to add to that i mean they were working on this up in san francisco and while that was going on tim burton was involved with batman returns like doing development which <laughs> in my mind means he was sort of probably hanging out with john peters doing who knows how much coke and then go into the Hollywood ball to try to push through his idea of having Max Shrek be in a character name in Batman Returns, which Max Shrek, I think is, uh, I think he's a character in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, if I'm not mistaken, or I Whoa. think Nosferatu. Sorry. Okay, so he's Nosferatu. obsessed. Film nerd. So, that, so, so yeah, if you want to ever check out an interesting character, John Peters, producer, holy crap, that guy. But some great, 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 amazing movies were made under that dude's production tutelage. But yeah, so being that things were up in San Francisco, like Tim Burton, I want to say he visited the set like about a half a dozen times maybe, and was just like, all right, cool. Um, and I feel like that's kind of like not an unusual thing. Right, yeah, it was more like the branding of Tim Burton and less something he made with his two hands the entire thing. Yeah. He was kind of checking in. Well, I think it's funny because, um, you know, a lot of people assume Tim Burton directed it because his name is slapped on the beginning there. And so when they see similar stop motion movies like Coraline, they think it's also a Tim Burton film. But it is, in fact, the same director of Nightmare Before Christmas. It's Henry Selleck as well. But yeah, it's right. not, Coraline is not a Tim Burton film. And I, I think it's really funny that people conflate that all the time. James and the Giant Peach also, I would have told you, was directed by Tim Burton. And I was wrong. I would be wrong. 
Again. It's Henry Selleck again. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Same um, visual style. And I also just assumed it was a Tarantino situation where he wrote these movies also. And Caroline Thompson wrote the screenplay and she wrote uh, Edward Scissorhands also and Homer Bound and Corpse Bride. She's like also super talented. And for some reason, yeah, I just thought it was a little like the scales of justice were a little bit uneven in Tim Burton's direction on this yeah. movie. Yeah. Well, he's doing coke and hanging out with Batman. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh my god i mean that seems important too let's be yeah honest. that's a win-win for timmy b if you ask me like that's the life i want to live we all have a different process and they're all equal it's anyway however you got to get there you get there okay so it took about three years to make stop motion is such a fascinating concept to me and i want to let you speak on it matt because i'm sure i'll do a crappier job um but i've always loved this style of animation but I know so little about it. I know words like rotoscoping, but but that's pretty much the top <laughs> of what I know. Yeah. So yeah, could you tell us the, the, I don't know, Everest of a film this probably was to make? It's sort of just when you stop and think about how a movie like this comes together, it's, it's really daunting. And there's just a lot, a lot of different parts and a lot of different hands coming in. I think like one of the most amazing things about this movie is you know, like Tim Burton, as we were talking about, like didn't direct it, didn't write it or anything. But when you think about like Tim Burton, his artwork, his vision, and then all the people it takes to bring this vision to life and how you still feel like you're seeing something Tim Burton made and it feels like he made it himself. I mean, that's a testament to the crew, just bringing his vision and keeping it consistent. Um, and man, the process to do that it's just it's 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 all the right people just in all the right place at all the right time so movies like this always kind of floor me because it's just like i look at them as just like little miracles that happen it's like so i feel very lucky that we have this movie because i think it needed to happen when it happened it's cool that it did and when you think about all the things kind of against it like disney you know like disney letting this happen holy crap it's shocking um, yeah and and as i mentioned they were in san francisco and that is because they were very far away from um, Burbank, California. So there wasn't a whole lot of mm. involvement with Disney coming in and being like, no, you can't do this. Hey, we'd rather see this. Disney didn't really know what this was. And actually this movie got released under Touchstone's label, which I think Roger Rabbit was released under that. So movies that were sort of like, I don't know if this is for kids or Disney was kind of confused by it and a they risk. shied away from putting their yeah. name on it. Yeah, it was like, ah, just we'll, we'll do Touchstone. And then as the years have gone on now and this movie's become cherished, um, Disney was just like, ah, well, yeah, well, well it's, it's our movie. You know, like it's, it's <laughs> yes, we made this. Yeah. Yeah. So. I remember seeing like Jack Skellington showing up in Disneyland and stuff. And I'm like, wait, that's a Disney movie. Like I, it, I it didn't I didn't put it together for the longest time. And it definitely feels like they took much more ownership of it more recently. Yeah. I want to say around like 2000. 2005 I think they finally were just like oh we get what this is which is amazing to me because I think this movie another merit to this movie is it's marketing it's goddamn marketing genius like yep. just even having done some animation for advertising and stuff it's just like anybody would love to have this in their hands and the fact that it took Disney that long to realize what this was baffles me because <laughs> it covers all the major holidays, you know, yeah. like October through December, New Year's even, like you can just have this movie around, you could buy yeah. things for Halloween, for Christmas, it just covers a fourth of the year and just yeah. merchandise alone, which is just like, who wouldn't want that? Brilliant. So I think that's what kind of awakened the beast. And then <laughs> it's just but done nothing but reap rewards for all involved. And those that created this movie, 
highly deserve that. So that's awesome. That is the conundrum, though, isn't it? Like, is this a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? Like, what time <laughs> of year do you actually put it in and, and hit play? You know, it's perfectly I, both. It's yeah, good. it's it's a gem, I, man. <laughs> I watched the first 14 minutes on Halloween, and then when he gets to Christmas Town, I pause it, and then I wait two months. And then you don't finish the movie, actually. You you pause it two-thirds in, and then you wait till next Halloween to watch <laughs> the ending sequence. I just love the Halloween part. I just want to see the Halloween Town. That's all I care about. I'm here for the Halloween. Yeah, um, and I love what you're saying about them doing it in San Francisco, Matt, about how, oh, how odd. It seems like if you just give a really creative kind of off-the-wall creator some money and a bunch of like the best people in his industry and send him off you know not under your micromanagement he creates this mm -hmm. brilliant you know piece of cinema yeah it's funny because in this movie too i feel like it's a lot of disney just like being like oh we shouldn't have oh what did we do so like you know a little background on tim burton was he was around the studio and uh he was there through like black cauldron and black cauldron has its own what was going on what was this it has a lot of disaster stories behind it and like tim burton kind of was let go from the studio due to that movie and i feel like after years had passed they probably looked and i think batman and Wee's big adventure probably really helped this too but i feel like someone at disney had to have been like we had that dude here and, and you let him go get him on the line now like what do we have like what did he do and then he's like i wrote a poem and you guys, you know, I worked for you guys, so you own it. Wow. That's in there somewhere. Dig in your archives and find it. And maybe someone did. That's how I kind of think about the story going. I mean, who knows what happened? And hopefully maybe he had good relationships with them past Black Cauldron. But I feel like when you see his artwork and stuff and things he was doing for Black Cauldron, someone definitely, I feel, had to look at that artwork and be like, why did we let this go? This is unique. Like, we can use this. And, and I think I like to think of Nightmare Before Christmas as just like an olive branch. To, mm -hmm. to Tim Burton, at least, and being like, hey, we're sorry. Like, you're creative. Like, we're sorry. Here's $18 million, and you can feel free to turn that into, <laughs> yeah, 70 or whatever. Please come make movies for us, sir. Here's yeah. The thing. Ethan, if we give creatives like free reign to execute their vision, though, how will we know when the upcoming Thor movie is coming out? You know what I mean? <laughs> That's I wanted to talk about that, too. Actually, you remind me because I instantly thought about how there's like no sequels. And I was like, this is from 93. There should be three, four mm -hmm. sequels of this already. And that was another yeah. Tim Burton thing where he was just like, no, nah, I don't want to fuck it up. Nightmare before Christmas, nightmare during Christmas, nightmare after Christmas. Yeah, it's right there. Nightmare I, Thanksgiving. I always wanted to nightmare, see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to see nightmare in saint patrick's day land valentine's <laughs> day dude the drunk days, nightmare <laughs> thanksgiving great. is just thanksgiving it's just right it's just the actual event <laughs> it's a documentary yeah it's terrible <laughs> get out of here tim burton <laughs> okay so i had a few kind of wild science type notes during the movie i don't know we were talking a little bit before the pod about that one scene where the scientist dr finkelstein yeah. um takes out half of his brain and <laughs> what did you call it oh a hemispherectomy a hemispherectomy, yeah. So yes. that's a thing. People have done that or would do that, that for any reason. That is a thing. That's a that's a medical procedure. What I'm cracking up with is how he he you know he's trying to make a replacement for Sally, so he stops getting poisoned all the time. But he already has an assistant who calls him Master. So I don't know why that guy doesn't make his soup. But that's hmm. besides yeah, the point. That's true. Um, so he's he's making himself another you know woman in his life, and he takes out half his brain and just plops it right in here. And I'm cracking up because, as I'm sure you're aware, right, your your brain is uh, lateralized, 
right? Like the it's famously like the left half of your brain basically is responsible for the right half of your body and the right, right. half of your brain is responsible for the left half of your body. So I'm cracking up that when he pulls out his left hemisphere, his right arm doesn't just go dead and he fumbles his own brain. But <laughs> anyway, hemispherectomies are a, a real thing that a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but many people have actually had in order to prevent seizures. Mm. Oh, people wow. who suffer from some, there, there are multiple brain surgeries that try and prevent chronic seizures when people like just are constantly like having four or six seizures a day. You can have a, a corpus colostomy where you cut the fibers that connect the two hemispheres of the brain. And the idea is if a seizure seems to start always in one hemisphere, that will prevent it from spreading to the other hemisphere of the brain. But if that's not enough, there are operations where a surgeon can go in and either just basically cut the hemisphere and, and leave it there, or they can actually do an anatomical hemispherectomy where they pull half that hemisphere out. And you'd be amazed because people can actually still lead mostly normal lives depending on when they have the hemispherectomy and kind of, you know, how their brains adapt afterwards. You're telling me our brains, half of it is somewhat useless, like we don't actually need. So half. I'm going to say it's definitely better to have one fully functioning brain. <laughs> You, you recommend know, like, both halves. I would recommend keeping both halves of your brain. Mm -hmm. But the brain exhibits plasticity, right? Where it can adapt to issues, you know, and, or trauma and rewire itself to, hmm. you know, redistribute the functions and operations of the brain. I don't know if mine can do that, but that does sound useful. No. The, it's funny you say that. The older we get, the less plastic our brains become. So oh, got it. the younger somebody has a hemispherectomy, generally the better outcome. And they still have to go through some therapy. So like I said, the brain is lateralized. And there are some things that are specifically handled by one hemisphere or the other. Mm -hmm. And the left hemisphere is more associated with language. So another error in the movie, you know, error if you want to call it that, is when Finkelstein pulls out his left hemisphere, he should instantly not be able to talk anymore. Because that, <laughs> that's his language processing, just gone. But what if he's been doing that for so many years that his brain has rewired itself to where now he only needs half? It's, it's interesting you say that. So I was reading about a, a case of a, a young girl who when she was still, you know, developing as a fetus, she had a stroke in her brain, in the left side of her brain. And so when she was born, she had these chronic seizures and they performed a hemispherectomy and she did not need to go through rehabilitation to learn how to speak again because they think that stroke damaged the language center of her brain when she was developing and the right hemisphere of her brain adapted for her to be able to speak and communicate and read. Damn. So Stepped when she up. had that hemispherectomy. That right hemisphere was like, I got this. I got this. Don't worry about it, baby. But I do think it's funny that as he is cutting his his left hemisphere out and putting it in his new creation, he says like, we'll be able to have conversations. And I'm like, no, you won't. <laughs> That's great. That seems like a, Not for a while. that seems like a sub joke, that whole little <laughs> that part now, right? I don't know. Seems like they kind of oh, knew. Oh, I'm sure they knew. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I want to ask you another scientist thing. He is knocked out by deadly nightshade. I don't know if you did any yes. research on this. I did. I did. Okay, cool. <laughs> I was like, is that a real thing? Guys, I know nightshades are a real thing, but yeah, it's called deadly nightshade. It has other scientific names, which you probably know, mm -hmm. but it is toxic. Belladonna. Yeah, belladonna. Thank you. Nightshade. Well, belladonna is Italian for uh, pretty woman. Sounds way nicer, by the way, than Deadly Nightshade. Belladonna? I I find that, that Pretty Women and Deadly Nightshade have a lot in common. Okay, interesting. Another whole podcast we could do. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, that's not true. Uh, so, <laughs> no, the reason it has that name is because uh, it was used as a pigment for makeup as well. So oh. its usefulness in that application is where it got its name. But Did it start killing people? <laughs> It's toxic. Well, only I don't know. If you ingest it, it is oh. it is toxic to eat. It has a couple alkaloids that are toxic, uh, atropine and scopolamine, if I'm pronouncing those right. Hmm. And it's funny because atropine actually has medical applications as well. Like surgeons can use it to regulate your heartbeat during an operation, or it'll keep your muscles paralyzed or prevent you from salivating too much. But in too high of quantities, it is deadly, you know, can cause paralysis and kill you. Damn. So these alkaloids are present throughout the whole plants. The roots are the deadliest, but the leaves, which Sally mixes into Finkelstein's soup, those are deadly as well. And it also produces these pretty black berries. And for an adult, about 10 to 20 should be a, a fatal number. And these berries are, are sweet. So they've been used historically to poison, you know, wines in political feuds. So I think it's funny that Sally uses the the bitter leaves that she has to cover up with frog's breath. And she could have just put the berries <laughs> in there and Finkelstein would have been like, oh, my soup, it's so sweet and delicious. And then dead, <laughs> except it doesn't kill him. He can take it. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go, back to the show about science. Another thing I think is really funny in this movie is when Jack Skellington is being tracked by like anti-aircraft guns and stuff, because it reminds me of how NORAD tracks Santa every year. But have you ever heard the story of why that is? No, and I found that scene shocking, by the way. I totally had forgotten that there were like anti-aircraft missiles being shot at him. It was <laughs> it was disturbing, let's say. Uh, so in the 50s, in 1955, uh, you know, it was the height of the Cold War. We were terrified of being attacked by the Russians. So in Colorado Springs, Colorado, we had the command center for what is today NORAD. And in a newspaper in Colorado, they posted a Sears ad that was like, you can call and talk to Santa. And they printed a phone number. But because of a misprint, they accidentally printed the hotline to NORAD. So some little kid <laughs> called this phone number and a red phone rang on this colonel's desk and he answers it. You know, it's only, the only other person who's supposed to have this phone number is like a four-star general at the Pentagon. So he answers this phone and it's a little kid who's like, can I speak to Santa? And this guy's like, what the hell are you doing? Get off the line. Is this a prank? And the kid starts crying. So this colonel feels so bad that he starts pretending to be Santa Claus. Whoa. Good pivot. So they assigned a few people to just answer phone calls from children and pretend to be Santa Claus at the base. And then as a joke, the people working there thought it would be funny if they start if they put Santa on like the big map of the United States and like track his location. And it just started a tradition at NORAD of, of <laughs> tracking Santa every year. Wow. Amazing. That is amazing. That guy's going to make a great dad. <laughs> I mean, man, that's the best dad. That kid could have gotten a whole lot of trouble. And instead he was like, I'll joke around with you. I'll be Santa. I love that it's not like today. I'm sure there's so many more steps between top secret phone lines and stuff in the public. But back then, if you just accidentally misdialed a number in Colorado, you could get the head of the Continental Air Defense. Yeah. That's huge. Was Sears like ever sued over that? Or I mean, was there- I have no idea. I wonder if the Santas they did hire to be taking phone calls were all depressed that nobody was calling. Yeah. 
and they thought it was people going lost the Christmas spirit. <laughs> That's like when some teenager calls up and is just like, "Fire at will!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, launch uh, yes, What are you waiting this, for? Launch this, this is Pentagon. Uh, just shoot those missiles yeah. off. Let's see what yeah. happens. Because <laughs> there were only like a hundred phone numbers at that time, so. <laughs> 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 your odds were really good of getting at some point you're going to talk to the fbi because there's just it's bound to happen yeah roll the dice um julian i wanted to ask you about parallel universes because that is something i think we've all thought about over the last four years you know not yeah you know, i'm not saying you got to believe in it i'm just saying we've thought about it so yeah how are things going in other universes for sure if they exist like this totally feels like an alternate 2020 and it, it, it is a big if because the catch 22 about parallel universes is you know how do you show evidence of them right how do you how do you probe for them i'm hoping you have some uh, man uh, <laughs> well <laughs> going to the movie i think it's funny because the uh the movie kind of implies that there are like separate worlds right like there's a halloween world there's a christmas world we don't see like saint patrick's day world i don't i don't know what would be going on in that world or thanksgiving oh, world. i know what's going on yeah in that, that would have to be a touchstone <laughs> pictures release put it that way <laughs> <laughs> but uh and the the first question right is like have you ever thought where holidays come from and i i guess the movie's like other dimensions actually which is a surprising answer but um the funny thing about a lot of uh conceptions of how you know the universe is is that they tend to naturally lead to the idea of multiple universes parallel universes a multiverse whatever you want to call it and there's actually a lot of different ways that there could be parallel universes. So like the first one that I think is most obvious is like just basically things replicate within our own current universe. You know, like it, it's possible that space goes on for infinity and there's infinite stuff. And if there's infinite matter and infinite space, there's only so many ways that you can rearrange matter. So eventually everything has to repeat an infinite number of times. So if you could just go far enough you would find another Ethan, another Matt, another Julian, right? Talking about some other movie. Uh, so that's that's one possibility. I wonder if like that's how Nightmare Before Christmas parallel universes should work if it were thought out, you know, because Jack goes into a door for Christmas Town and then just comes back later, I guess, from walking. Like he just walks far enough and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm back at Halloween Town. Well, it kind of checks so, out to what you're saying if he walks far enough, although the kids got yeah. there, no problem. Yeah. Well, they had a bathtub. Let's be honest. They they did have a walking bathtub. <laughs> yeah, it makes it easier uh, traveling. So then there's like bubble universes and bubble universes comes from this idea of, okay, after the Big Bang, you had a period of inflation, right? Where the universe was expanding exponentially. It was getting really big, really, really fast. And if it stops expanding unevenly in certain places, but keeps expanding in other places, you could get these kind of this bubble effect and have different universes within. And inside each bubble, you could have different, you know, fundamental laws of physics that govern particles that everything's made up of or the forces that govern everything. So from bubble to bubble, you could have very, very different worlds. So maybe you have a world where like ghosts are real and explainable in some way from these other, you know, fundamental laws being different. Uh, you have membranes you could have from string theory, this idea that, okay, there's 10, 11 dimensions. String theory allows for membranes to exist, like three-dimensional. Uh, the physicist Brian Green describes them as like loaves of bread. So our universe could exist on this one loaf, on this one membrane, 
And then the next loaf over is a completely different universe. It's Rye. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's that pumpernickel universe that we all wish we were in. I really do. <laughs> we got the Kaiser roll. <sighs> of course. <laughs> and then finally, there's the uh, one solution to a major problem of quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics, right, describes the world in a probabilistic way, right? We're used to everything being deterministic, where like, if I throw a ball, I can tell you, you know, exactly how far it's going to go, the path it's going to follow from classical equations. But the quantum world doesn't work that way. The quantum world operates on probabilities where, okay, if I shoot an electron through these two slits, there's a chance it goes through this slit and a chance it goes through this slit. And until I measure it, I don't know. And until I measure it, it goes through both. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about, and I see the parallel here to these different dimensions or different worlds. And if it's like, on one hand, if you just ask me while we're eating a Kaiser Roll sandwich, hey, you believe in like multiple dimensions? Like offhand, no. I What are you talking about? I, I think we would know about it or have some evidence, etc. But if I really think about it, I think you got to go multiple dimensions. I don't know how they exist or where, but I feel like we don't know more than we know. Right. So there's a version of you that says yes and a version of you that says no is what you're saying. Right. Yes, exactly. So the problem with quantum mechanics is like we don't really understand why when we measure, you know, where the electron goes through, why it goes through one or the other, why we only see it go through one slit in, in a double slit experiment. So one possible solution to that is multiple universes that says, hey, it actually does go through both, and we just branched off into a different universe and only observed it going through the one. But in another parallel universe, there's another version of us that's observing this same experiment and sees the electron go through the other. So all of these different ways are potential possibilities for how parallel universes could exist, and we have proof of exactly none of them. Sweet. Yeah, we just have unconfirmed weird experiments that yep. show results that we don't understand. Which basically just some mathematical equations that people are arguing about. You know, there's there's still a lot of division in the scientific community of whether, you know, many worlds solves this problem of quantum mechanics or not. Mm -hmm. But all it kind of boils down to is even if it exists, like, eh, it's just kind of fun to think about. I don't know what you're really going to do about it after that. At least there's only divisions in the scientific community and not outside <laughs> of or judging, a, you know, half the country doesn't want science anymore. I wanted to ask you about something else. You mentioned that we can die from being scared. In Halloween yes. Town, the whole thing is scaring, like they love scaring people, which this really does make it my nightmare. I don't like when people scare me or surprise me with <laughs> stuff. I don't know. It feels like it's unhealthy for me. But you're saying it is for sure unhealthy for me and I can die from that. Yes, there is a, a way that you can literally die of fear. So when you're scared, you know, your, your sympathetic nervous system, you activate the, the fight or flight response, right? Your brain basically signals your neurons and your endocrine system to just dump uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and cortisol into your bloodstream. And epinephrine, also known as adrenaline, does this thing in your heart where it keeps these ion channels open. The way your heart beats is you have cells in your right atrium that allow calcium ions to slowly leak in. And when they hit a certain threshold, these cells fire and it causes your heart to contract in a rhythmic fashion. Hmm. 
Adrenaline allows more calcium ions to flood in, so your heart beats faster. But if you have too much and that channel gets stuck open, these calcium ions flood these cells and the cells can't get rid of the calcium to reset. So your heart can go into ventricular fibrillation where it's just pulsating without any sort of rhythm and it doesn't pump blood very efficiently. So it's, it's a heart attack and you can die because too much adrenaline overloaded your heart and killed you. Wow. I guess that's how I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah. uh, Thank you. I'm, I, I get so jumpy. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a joke. I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather and not screaming and yelling like all the people in his car. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Seems like a great man. Um, so are you saying that like bravery or confidence, will that help potentially save our lives if we're, you know, in a high pressure situation? So you can actually train your fight or flight response so you respond better to fear it's why you know when you join the military and are in a boot camp you're in intense high pressure situations because modern problems that humans tend to encounter they require usually more thought instead of like a, a physical response like running away or being able to just you know have more adrenaline and more control and learn how to direct it in helpful ways uh also to say that you can die of fear doesn't mean you will die of fear, right? It's a possibility, but there are other variables, you know, your age. Uh, There's plenty of other ways you can die. There are plenty of ways to die. I wouldn't be too afraid of dying of fear, but it, the odds of it happening are not zero, is all I'm saying. Wow. <laughs> it can happen, but it won't. It probably won't, but it can. But it can, and it will. It, it, and it will, and you will die, <laughs> maybe. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go back to the show about science. Julian, I had a question talking about parallel universes and stuff. Um, yeah. And I would like to know your thoughts on this. In figuring out if they exist, is there something like the Hadron Collider could provide? Because ever since they turned that thing on, I've been highly suspicious that like <laughs> that's when things went topsy-turvy. Whoa, I love this theory. But at the core yeah. of that, yeah, like can that prove like Oh, like, can it find some openings or, you know, something? As a matter of fact, uh, Brian Greene, the same guy I quoted earlier, where I got a lot of this information about parallel universes, talks about the Large Hadron Collider as maybe one way of demonstrating the string theory approach that we are different membranes, yeah. different loaves of bread. And the way you would measure that is in a high energy collision. You know, you would know the energy of the, the hadrons going in, the, the protons that you shoot at each other. And then you could measure the energy of the collision. And if there seems to be some missing energy, it's possible that these you know, particles that were generated were, I think the technical term is yeeted into another dimension. Jeez, whoa, so, okay. Yeah. Why, how is that the theory? Why wouldn't they just get you know, there's, decimated? There's a lot of potential ways the Large Hadron Collider could demonstrate parallel like uh, other dimensions. One of them is the famous, like people are worried about black holes right? From the Large mm -hmm. Hadron Collider. That was a thing yeah, for who a while. Isn't? Every day, I'm going to die of fear of it. I think about it constantly. <laughs> There's nothing about a black hole that seems peaceful and chill. <laughs> but there is potential that the Large Hadron Collider or a more powerful uh, accelerator could generate a microscopic black hole. But in order for that to happen, you would need more dimensions. And the thinking is to create a black hole, you need to compress mass down below the Schwarzschild radius, right? down to mm -hmm. the point where gravity takes over and it just crushes the whole thing to a singular point 
in space, right? The singularity. But, exactly. But for a Purist. subatomic <laughs> particle, the Schwarzschild radius, because they're, they're so small, the Schwarzschild radius is smaller than a Planck length. And a Planck length is basically the smallest meaningful unit of measurement. It's an incredibly small space. A Planck length is an, is, that's an actual scientific term. Yes. That scientists a, say. Yes, a, a Planck length. And Planck, Planck length sounds insane. It was it was determined by Max Planck using a few fundamental uh, constants of the universe. So because gravity as we know it can't compress a subatomic particle below a Schwarzschild radius uh, because the, it, it would have to be smaller than a Planck length, the only Planck way, length, yep. yep, the only way you would get a black hole from a uh, particle accelerator would be if there were multiple dimensions that somehow intensified the force of gravity so you could in fact compress it and make a singularity out of a subatomic particle. So if we detect a black hole in a Large Hadron Collider or another accelerator, that would also be evidence that there are more dimensions and we just live in three of them. Wow. Whoa. Was I his mean, name Max Planck? Yeah. Max Planck. Small, smallest line of coke ever done by Max Planck. <laughs> oh, man. Plank, plank Great. Coke. How did I not see that? Dude, I'm searching for any reason to say Planck length. I just want to say Planck length and you have the perfect I just did a little, I just did a little Planck length. Like, don't. I'm, I'm fine. I'm I not addicted. Try. I'm not. If I was addicted, I wouldn't. I would do more than a Planck length. Let's talk, let's talk more about Batman Returns. I'm fine. Like, that is some crazy stuff, man. Wow. Yeah, that's wild. And speaking of wild... You know that there's been some covers, of course, of these songs, these brilliant Danny Elfman songs in Nightmare Before Christmas, but I did not know until today that there was one by Korn. Have you guys Hell heard yeah. this? Say what now? Uh-huh. Say what? Say what? Say what? Say what? Call the family. <laughs> wow. Deep Korn reverence. There you go. Um, Kidnap the Sandy Claws was covered by Korn. Um, wow. Maybe we can insert a tiny clip of that here. That'd be great. Let's give it. Let's give it to the audience. Uh, here is a plank length clip of Corn's <laughs> new song, Kidnap the Sandy Claws, which yeah. can't be new. It's got to be from like a decade ago. Here it is. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Emily, our producer, is informing me that Marilyn Manson did This Is Halloween. Which actually makes a ton of sense. I need to hear that now. Marilyn Manson and Disney movies. Two things that are synonymous in my mind. <laughs> it's totally crazy that this is a Disney movie. That will never stop surprising me. Um, okay, Matt, what is going on with you? Where can people see your art? Yeah, for my work, I have a website that I put up work I do. And that website is called Taylor, T-A-Y-L-I-Q-U-O-R.com. And that's because you drink? That's Yeah, that's pretty much how that lands <laughs> but you know if we're talking animation that's just the common that's how some of the cartoons get made awesome but uh yeah so that's that website has a lot of work you can see the willie nelson video up there um and a couple other projects i've done and another thing i kind of want to point out is um since we're talking about like scary movies and stuff yeah. um recent production i was on jj villard's fairy tales which i think mm. you mentioned at the beginning of the show yes, sir amazing like a lot of the jj projects are like the funnest things i've done in animation so there's that there's king star king um you can check all those out on adult swims website and with fairy tales we got a lot of people from the uh, horror genre uh, mm. So we have like Linda Blair doing voices, Pinhead. Um, we got uh, Freddy Krueger. Uh, 
what's his name uh from stranger things on there too finn 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 wolfard yeah he's boy punzel there you go <laughs> so there's a lot of cool stuff uh in that cartoon and it was it was just a blast to make so check it out i think it's it to me it feels like uh, just an anomaly like nightmare before christmas it's just it's a lucky thing to have have happened it's a rare unique thing that's when animation's best i think you very quickly get the vibe that this is a here take uh, these creators put them in san francisco and just let them do their thing uh, it doesn't yeah it doesn't seem like a ton of notes let me put it that way yeah pure <laughs> i mean that's that's when it's best man keep it pure like just if you trust your creators and you trust the people that they want involved and they, they'll make it happen and you'll get some good results i think it's just a lesson to be learned from this movie for studios and producers out there just if you trust someone's creative prowess just let it go yeah, and you'll get the animation and just... cocaine, both best pure. <laughs> but always, yeah, just always do some coke with your creators, though. You got to bond. Yeah, you got to bond. People are going <laughs> yeah. to get the wrong impression from this episode. And even if it's just, even if it's just a plank clink, just a plank clink, <laughs> it just goes a long way. Yeah, just, all yeah. drugs are like legal now. Uh, I think in where was it? Oregon. Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. So Lots just... of stop motion. That's where Leica's at. So we'll be seeing hmm. some cool Leica movies soon. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. Um, okay. Well, Julian Huguid, where can people find you? See what you're up to. I have been on. On Seeker's YouTube channel for a long, long time now. I'm still regularly making videos there, and you can also find me on Twitter at Hug It Out. H U G G E T O U T. Okay, so see, the pronunciation thing was your fault. It is my fault. I like being confusing. It's okay. A- <laughs> It's a Schrodinger's name. It's a very good quality to have as a science communicator is to <laughs> enjoy confusing people. Um, no, I thank you for your seeker service. Um, obviously, you know, people need to go watch these videos. Um, they're all fantastic. And uh, yeah, thank you both. I mean, just for coming on the show and taking the time. I super appreciate and found tons of this stuff fascinating. And hopefully we can meet up again and do Coraline, also not directed by Tim Burton. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Absolutely, man. I think we're the first people to talk about this movie and not mention once Danny Elfman. Yeah, it's true. That's skill. <laughs> I, I wanted to come at it from an odd angle. I didn't want to do, yeah. Sure. All the... Yeah, that typical. But yeah, Danny Elfman, cool. He was in it. <laughs> Done. Everybody, know, everybody that knows in. that. No one knows You're... that corn. corn yeah. <laughs> We're getting to we Danny Elfman by way of corn. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to sit here and tell you things you know. And hold your hand. No, we're going to tell you about corn. <laughs> yeah. The stuff you want to know. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, speak to you guys next time. Again, seriously, thank you. And yeah, I hope you had fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, man. This is great. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bad Science is a Seeker podcast produced by Emily Feld and me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our editor is Lucas Bollinger, and our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. Shout out to EJ and Kate. And the pumpkin king deucer is Brett Kushner. Oh, follow us on Instagram at BadSciencePod. If there's a movie you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, feel free to email at BadScienceAtSeeker.com. That's BadScienceAtSeeker.com. And please leave us an iTunes review. Give us five stars. I sound like an Uber driver. But it does help. It makes sure people know about the podcast, which we really appreciate. Thanks for listening. Bye.